Today on State Scoop's Priorities Podcast from Scoop News Group, a high-stakes promise on closing the broadband gap. So what I've said to the governor is that with this amount of money, if we can't solve this problem, you should fire all. Adding DJ to the acronym list for IT leaders. With relation to leadership is that although there is a melody, the baseline and other you know instrumentation play a incredibly important part. Welcome to State Scoop's Priorities Podcast. Every Thursday, you'll get insights into the state and local government technology community. You'll hear from top leaders across the state and local world, as well as the latest news and trends ahead for the industry. I'm your host, Jake Williams. Here's what's happening this week. Phil Whitmer is stepping down as Virginia's CIO after less than a month on the job. Governor Glenn Youngkin appointed Whitmer to the post January 21st. Neither Whitmer nor the governor's office commented on the reason for the departure. New York State is opening a, quote, state-of-the-art cybersecurity facility in Brooklyn. The facility will be an operation center for state and local cyber needs. Governor Kathy Hochul says the center will give the state's hundreds of municipalities more help defending themselves against cyber attacks. New Orleans needs to reverse its ban on facial recognition, Mayor LaToya Cantrell asks. The city council banned the technology a year ago because of concerns of racial bias. The mayor is asking for the reversal because of recent spikes in crime. You can read these stories and more on statescoop.com. You can also find links in today's show notes. States have a chance to close the digital divide thanks to money coming in from the American Rescue Plan and Federal Infrastructure Package. Tony Neal Graves is the chief information officer for the state of Colorado. He also led the state's broadband office for three years. He tells statescoop's Colin Wood how broadband fits into his plans as the state's top tech lead. You know, it was a big priority for me. You know, I think it's for everybody is broadband. I mean, there's just so much money flowing at us from the feds now. Um, and uh, we're working with the governor to reevaluate what our, our commitment is to essentially closing that access gap, primarily in the rural parts of the state. And then there's, there's some other things that we're going to be talking about in terms of, uh, again, it kind of gets back to not just access, but affordability and, you know, some of the other things that, that come into play. Because, you know, if you sit in a Denver and sure, there's, there's great broadband there, but if you can't afford it, it doesn't matter. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's there's going to be some really interesting conversations around that. But that's that's another big thing for us. And we just brought on a new uh, executive director for our broadband office, uh, Brandy Ryder, who, who just joined us. She was the uh, town manager in Eagle. Um, and uh, so we're looking forward to her doing some really cool stuff with us. So. With this funding, how far off will you be from like 100%, mi- you know, minus the affordability piece? Um, do you have any yeah. do you have any sense of that? Um, that's a great question. What we're, what, I, what I'm willing, what I'll tell you what I would believe we'll get to like 99%. The reason, only reason I say that is just from an engineering standpoint, mm-hmm. the moment we say 100%, we're going to find some rural community out there that we missed. You know, and uh, I, I just recently gave uh, another uh, interview, I think it was to the Colorado Sun, where we talked about this. And at a minimum, you know, between the ARPA funds and the infrastructure bill, there's a minimum of like $200 million that's available to the state. You know, almost no question. Just asked. for broadband. Just for broadband. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and then if you look at all of the different broadband programs, that the federal government is funding, and depending on how you access that money, you can almost get close to a billion dollars worth of money that could flow into the state, not all directly through state government, but just through the very various programs that exist. Because um, you know, a service provider can go apply for a federal program that has nothing to do with us directly. So what I've said to the governor 
is that with this amount of money, if we can't solve this problem, you should fire all of us because mm -hmm. the, the, it's it's no longer is the money available. Mm -hmm. It's making sure that you spend it wisely is really what the issue is going to be. Right, right. Yeah, that's interesting because it, it sounds like a lot of money. And then, you know, when you see the you contrast it against the one billion for cybersecurity, everyone's kind of like, yeah, great. But one billion divided by 50 divided by however many years is mm -hmm. certainly no one's no one's saying that's going to solve the cybersecurity problem. But yeah. yeah, the broadband thing, I think that was yeah. it seems like that was the intent of that funding is like we're going to give you all this money. It's a lot of money. Uh, mm -hmm. This this should be able to more or less solve it. Yeah, I I agree with you. I you know by the way, there's so much money floating around. I, I might get this wrong, wrong, but I think it's the infrastructure bill. There's like sixty five billion dollars. Right. Yep. Right. And you so you know when you contrast it to what you just talked about with cybersecurity, which I think I also agree that's not enough to really solve this problem. But if you spend it wisely, hmm. you know. Um, we can solve the capital investment problem to make sure the infrastructure is there to provide high-speed broadband. I, I'm, I'm thoroughly convinced of that. Hmm. Now, when you get into some of these other issues about, you know, equity in the business model for broadband, you know, is it a utility? Is it just a, a service that you, you know, you acquire? You know, I think those conversations it gets a little bit tougher. That's hmm. a different conversation. But I, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer that. Uh, you know, we could we could get fiber to just about any place in the state with that kind of money. Tony Neil Graves, the CIO of Colorado. You can read more about how Colorado is using ARPA funds and planning for infrastructure dollars at statescoop.com. Broadband is not just a huge focus for Colorado. On the 2022 top 10 priorities list for state CIOs, it ranks third. That's the highest it's ever ranked since the association created the list more than a decade ago. Chris Mitchell is the director of the Community Broadband Networks Initiative at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. The Institute provides technical assistance and analysis on broadband across the country. Colin asked Mitchell if he thinks the money is enough to solve the broadband problem. I think there is enough funding here to solve the infrastructure gap in states that spend it well, but I don't think most states will necessarily spend it well. Um, mm. And so that's to say that the digital divide is like is multiple things and it can be complicated to talk about how we're going to make sure everyone can afford it and everyone has the skills to use it. But in terms of like making sure that everyone has a Internet connection available at their house at some price, I think that would be something that can be done in most states if they had uh, good policies. Colorado is a state that I think uh, takes this seriously and probably will do uh, what um, um the CIO says. Right. Okay. Why, what, what does your cynicism stem from in terms of saying that some states won't spend this well? Um, some states are heavily influenced by the big cable and telephone companies, and um, they uh, may try to figure out how to give most of it to those existing companies. You know, some states don't even have a broadband office to speak of yet. There's um, just a real history of government subsidies for broadband being uh, spent inefficiently. And so to think that every state will figure out how to do this correctly uh, strikes me as fanciful, but I still think it's the best possible route we could have gone because it's far preferable to the FCC misspending all of the money. I mean, what I should say is that it's just better for a few states to make mistakes and a lot of states to make get it right and everyone to learn lessons that's much better than if uh, the FCC just like sort of spends it. No one really pays attention to it and no one learns anything. 
Well, you said you thought Colorado was doing a decent job. Are there any other states that strike you as worthy of emulation? Yeah, I mean, I think Vermont and Maine are two states that have done very well. You know, I think Illinois uh, has done well. Mississippi has, uh, I don't want, don't want to only pick uh, in the blue states, but, uh, you know, Mississippi has uh, had um, distributed the CARES Act funding in really intelligent ways. Um, and so I would think that they have a um, one of the states I'll be watching. Um, also, Arkansas, um, I think, will do a pretty good job. In, in both the case of Arkansas and in Mississippi, you have uh, electric cooperatives that have really stepped up and worked with the states to solve that. Um, so I think those are good areas. I'm trying to think of some of the other ones. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely very excited about New York and California, who I think have been making good strides. And so I would expect them to do well. When you say those states are doing things well and smartly, what does that mean exactly? What is it that they're doing that others aren't? I think they've embraced solutions that work for their states. Um, there's not the same solution in every state. But, uh, you know, if you look at what um, Matt Schmidt is doing in Illinois, uh, it involves a lot of collaboration with local leaders and a recognition that probably a small town in the southern part of the state has different needs than Chicago or its suburbs do. Um, so there's a real respect for uh, local collaboration. And that's something that Congress has required in a lot of the money being spent. So that's good. I think that there's a real effort to um, support uh, community-led solutions, uh, which is kind of building on the first point, but is you know looking at the way that we electrified the entire country was with these electric co-ops. You know, some people take the wrong lessons away from electrification, I think. They think that it was just the, the fact that the federal government spent a lot of money on it. When what's really important is that the federal government created locally rooted institutions and then provided financing to them so they could make these investments in infrastructure. Those investments then um, remained affordable and really helped build economic development and um, increase productivity and create all kinds of other local benefits. Um, and so one of the things that I think is successful, or one of the things that I think states do successfully is when they engage with those local groups. In some cases, it actually is those electric co-ops, um, both the case of Arkansas and Mississippi. But in other cases, like in Vermont, they've the towns have formed these communications union districts, which is a kind of a new structure. And that has worked really well in the state, I think was probably um surprised i mean to the extent that the people that are making these decisions in the state weren't big fans of this approach six seven years ago but now they believe it's the the best approach in part because it has so much local buy-in from uh the select boards that that run the towns so we've been talking about infrastructure and that's one thing so what are the other considerations and what will it take for high-speed internet to be as ubiquitous as phone service for example well, I think the, the next trick then is affordability because we already have a ton of people in urban areas where there is a network, perhaps even multiple networks nearby, and they do not use them. Uh, and a major barrier to that is affordability. The next issue is one of like sort of relevance and having digital skills. Uh, you know, we often think of older Americans, uh, older adults when we um, think about this, but people who haven't yet developed the ability to um, be confident in using the Internet uh, in a safe way. I uh, certainly don't want to throw a whole bunch of people online without any sense of how to operate in a safe manner. Um, you know, check your spam folder sometime to see what scams are, are coming about. Um, and so that's a real challenge. And we don't have enough money appropriated to do all of that training 
and uh, build the local coalitions that are needed to support people who are new to the technology. Uh, so that's another piece. And then the final big piece that we think about a lot is devices, making sure that for everyone who can afford it, the connection, uh, for everyone that has the skills to use it, that they have a device that will work well for them and uh, be secure. So those are things that, that are remaining to be challenges, I think. And you know, the federal government has put some money into that. I think the states should contribute some to it. But uh, that's going to be something that really we really see ramping up in the coming years. Right. What happens to the market, the broadband market, when the infrastructure, when it becomes fully saturated? In other words, when there's nowhere else to build because there's infrastructure everywhere, does that drive down prices or other things going to happen? Do you have any expectation of what this future would look like? No, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, you know, I guess one of the things we could say is that most cities, I mean, probably where 75% of, of Americans live, that's the case right now, right? Is that like pretty much everyone is served. You know, I think that there's always ways to improve it, but we see you know, AT&T and other companies putting millions of more dollars into extending their fiber networks to more families. So that will continue, I think. Um, and hopefully we'll have more and more overlapping networks that will, I don't wanna say drive the price down because I don't know that that will really happen, but certainly, slow the increase um you know we may see some price declines with rigorous competition um but given all of the concerns around inflation and the the challenges of getting devices it's not clear to me that we would uh, be able to significantly lower the price in coming years from that competition um but right now like i do think it's the case that the public policy is focused on getting wires and wireless connections to some extent out to people that don't have a good option. And that problem will soon be solved, as you say. I'm curious if people like me can be successful in arguing that government should use its power to then make a functioning market and 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 try to see what happens with competition. But I don't think it's a conclusion that the federal government will try to fix the market for most of us, uh, it's quite possible that a lot of people in the federal government will just say that, well, we got to wire out to everyone. And so our job is done. You know, uh, we'll move on and focus on other things. Chris Mitchell, the director of the Community Broadband Networks Initiative at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. You can read more about CIOs closing the broadband gap at statescoop.com. I'm Jake Williams, the host of the Priorities Podcast from StateScoop. Next week on the show, a conversation with state and local government data leaders as part of StateScoop's special report on data and analytics. You can subscribe at PrioritiesPodcast.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Maryland's Information Technology Department has a budget of nearly $195 million for 2022, but budget figures aren't the only thing on Michael Leahy, the state CIO's mind. Leahy is part of a number of leaders across the state and local government community with a connection to the music industry. Leahy is the current president of NASIO. He's also a former co-owner of a recording studio and worked as a radio DJ. He still writes and produces music in his spare time. Leahy tells Colin what his DJ name is. Mike Savage. Oh, Mike Savage. Okay. Right. <laughs> how, did you, how did you arrive at that one? God only knows. That was marketing people deciding that uh, Mike Leahy was too boring. Oh, how how dare they? Well, what market were you on in, and how did that how did that all go? Um, it, it was in the Baltimore, uh, you know, metropolitan market, uh, small AM top forty station, uh, and started doing that after I started a radio station 
where I was going to college at Loyola in Baltimore. So what was on the radio at that time? Not to not oh, to immediately date you, but not to immediately date me. Um, a, a number of things. Uh, disco was just getting started. The BGs were mm. uh, changing formats. Uh, there was uh, still a lot of interest in you know the super groups from the late '60s, like the Moody Blues and the Who and the Rolling Stones. And um, some things that we don't hear anything like them today, you know, like Karen Carpenter mm. and uh, lots of uh, music that uh, had a Latin character, but uh, was more of a spoof of, of Latin music than uh, genuine, uh, either uh, salsa or uh, calypso or things like that. Uh, you were part owner of a recording studio? Yes. Uh, after I uh, finished studying law and came back to this part of the world, um, there was a fellow I had met when we were in college, that uh, brilliant engineer, and he actually bought an existing recording studio and uh he had been operating it for about two years when, when I came back to the area uh, and asked me if I wanted to become involved with him with it. And I jumped at the opportunity. Um, we were uh, in North central Baltimore, uh, right on the cusp of uh, a good neighborhood touching on a bad neighborhood. <laughs> mm-hmm. So our, uh, our rent for the building was fairly low, and most of our clientele, uh, interestingly enough, was folks playing uh, gospel and blues. So uh, wow. not, not you know, the typical rock and roll that uh, had everybody starting garage bands at the time. Right. Well, that sounds great. And did anyone notable record there? Um. We, we had a number of people come through uh, that came and, you know, did uh, a day or two of recording. I guess the, uh, the ones that folks in that era would have uh, remembered were folks like Thelma Houston, who uh, was very big in the, the 60s and early 70s. Uh, Dennis DeYoung, who was the keyboard player and singer for Styx. Uh, back in the day, um, were, were the two that uh, we actually had groupies hanging out at the studio for a day or two. Yeah. <laughs> Synth programming. So is that something you still are interested in or is that uh, another? Yeah, very much, that? although it, it has become um, both more complex and simpler. Uh, it's sort of like if you used to like to work on your car, you're not going to do anything with it without attaching it to a computer now. Mm. Uh, most of the synthesizers, well, in fact, all of the synthesizers in the uh, mid to late 70s were analog machines. So the programming was uh, relatively simple knobs and buttons. And... Uh, 
you know, the, the entire concept of synthesis was uh, with regard to changing a wave shape and how much attack mm-hmm. and decay and sustain and things of that sort. At the studio, uh, because we, we weren't making money hand over fist uh, recording, uh, we actually started writing programs for uh, synthesizers that were popular uh, back in those days. There were a number by a company called ARP. Uh, the ARP 2600 was probably the first popular synthesizer that had significant capabilities. Obviously, there were a number of Moog synthesizers. And then uh, later, the Yamaha, the first uh, digital DX7 synthesizers and a number of the first sampling machines. But we would uh, do uh, libraries of sounds. Mm. And it, it, it's funny because, you know, the Internet was was only 20 years too late for us. Uh, we, we actually contracted with some folks uh, that were in bigger recording studios to write sounds for them. They would tell us what sort of sound they were looking for. We would write it. And then uh, on our Apple IIe computers, send it to them through our 300 baud modem. (laughs) So you would would turn it on and let it run overnight. Right. Did you ever produce any electronic music yourself or was it just mainly creating these um, programs? I, I, I have dabbled in it myself and uh, I, I have some things that that I've written that um, you know my, my wife who hates electronic music uh, will disown any chance she gets but um, never actually uh, performed any of it you know publicly. Uh, it was more just a hobby uh, group of friends and uh, right. still play with it a lot these days. But um, most of what I do, uh, you know, uh, people my age laugh at me because uh, they don't think of electronica and trance music and things like that as uh, particularly melodic. <laughs> so. Right, right. So most of the folks I do this with are half my age or even younger. All right. So music is pretty universal. So maybe there's nothing here. But do you think there's any connection between the work that a technologist and a leader does and music? Can you draw any sort of connection between those those two worlds and those two oh, lines yeah, of work? Absolutely. Yeah, m- music and, and mathematics have a lot to do with each other. And if one studies music theory in any detail, the, the discipline and the uh, importance of pattern are you know, very significant to creating uh, tonal music that, that humans will like. Uh, there, there's lots of atonal music that kind of grates on you, but uh, there are many similarities and um, the, the thing that I find most interesting about it, uh, as you say, with relation to leadership is that although there is a melody, often the, uh, the baseline and uh, the temporal effects, uh, as well as the 
other, you know, instrumentations. You know, typically we may have a bra brass in orchestral music uh, as as the the soloist, but all of the strings and all of the wind instruments play an incredibly important part, and each of them. Uh, adds to the experience and, and the harmony that is created, um, you know, has always been an inspiration for me that, that leadership is uh, not so much telling folks what to do, but finding a way to work with them in harmony. And if things are not harmonious, uh, helping them to get everything aligned. The artist formerly known as Mike Savage and currently known as CIO of Maryland, Mike Leahy. You can read more about Leahy and other GovTech leaders' music careers in an upcoming piece on statescoop.com. This show is a product of Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helped put this show together and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Until next week, I'm your host, Jake Williams. Thanks for listening.